0: We are continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 3. I wondered this week what it would be like if God kept a journal. You know, journals can be intriguing because they hold a person's inner thoughts and feelings. And reading through a journal helps us understand how how they see themselves, how they understand their relationships to other people. So what does a journal written by God look like? Well, if you look back in the Old Testament, we see some entries into God's journal that give us a glimpse into God's heart. And we see the tension right away in Hosea 11.1, when he says, Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called him my son. And we start with these tender words of love and compassion, God's love for his people in the Exodus from Egypt. And the plagues were sent, and the waters parted, and secured their freedom, and even food fell from the heavens. Things seem good in their history, but just the next verse in the journal paints another side of the story. In verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to bales and burning offerings to idols. See, God's people had a good childhood, but soon they stopped listening to the Lord and would soon do the exact opposite that God commanded. And the problem facing God's people was now much greater than a tyrant in Egypt and a slavery that came with it. They needed a solution greater than another exodus from a land. And throughout his journal, we read line after line of the struggle between the continued faithfulness of God and the continued unfaithfulness of his people. And it seems that God might have just given up on his people. But then we keep reading and find out that he will never give up. Line after line, tragedy after tragedy, person after person, God will have his way, but not before going silent for four centuries. No word from God, which brings us to Luke and God comes and speaks to the lowly to the nobodies to the weak and the inconsequential in this world and he he discloses an amazing plan to redeem his people and to take the news to the world and as we saw last week John exalts Christ and he pushes himself to the side and he cries out another gospel writer behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world see John lived his life to exalt Jesus And so that leads me to my main idea. And if I said this through the gospel of Luke, if you write down anything in this sermon, write down this, okay? Here's the main idea. Exalting Christ will cost us more than we realize and satisfy us longer than we imagine. Exalting Christ will cost us more than we realize and satisfy us longer than we can imagine. And see, John's Ministry is a two sided coin, a, a plea for repentance and preparation for the Lord's coming on one side and, and looking to Christ on the other. And like a good pathfinder, John points to Jesus in every sentence. So this morning we're going to look at verses 15 in Luke chapter 3 through the end of the chapter. And, and three areas that we'll see that, that talk about Jesus. Okay, so three points to this sermon. They should be on the screen at some point for you if you want to take notes. If not, it's on the the church app. If you haven't downloaded that, you can look through that, and it has the church, uh, the the bulletin for today, and then the, the points of the main idea and the three points are on there also. But number one, what does John say about Jesus? What does John say about Jesus? Verses 15 through 20. So look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, John's preaching was bringing crowds to the wilderness. He wasn't a prophet to the city. He was was subjected to the unknown, to the areas where no one lived and people flocked there to hear him preach. And they're thinking about what he's saying. He says they're, they're questioning in their hearts concerning John. And friends, the, the gospel takes huge strides in people when it causes them to think. People cannot be converted unless there is first some thought that's given to who Jesus is and why he came to earth. Thinking is the start of the path towards conversion. Thinking is not faith and repentance, but it's, also, but it's always this hopeful symptom So when people begin to start thinking about God in their hearts, we need to be encouraged, friends. That's the first step. And the people here, they're considering who John was and what he was saying. And so they begin to ask questions. Was he a Christ? Remember, they haven't heard anything for for 400 years. And so they're trying to piece together what's happening here, what John is saying. But in this, John is quick to point people to God and not himself. See, faithful preachers always exalt Christ. They will refuse to honor themselves in their preaching. And our task as preachers is to make Jesus big and ourselves small. We cannot point people to Jesus and to ourselves at the same time. And Jesus was a pointer away from himself to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, I do believe we slander Christ when we think we are to draw the people by something else, but by the preaching of Christ crucified. There must be no other topic on the lips of a preacher other than Jesus Christ. And we see this so clearly in the ministry of John. And then he makes an interesting statement here about not being worthy of untying Jesus' sandals. See, one duty of, of a slave, that he, he was to untie the sandals from his master's feet. But in Judaism, there was such a degrading task that even a Hebrew slave sh- shouldn't do that. And here John is saying that he is so inferior to the coming Messiah that he is not even worthy to perform the even most menial task of this servant. And John wouldn't even think of himself being the lowest servant of Jesus. See, he's constantly wanting to point away from himself to Christ. It's not that untying sandal was too demeaning for the prophet. It's that he was not worthy enough to be that close to the Messiah. It's like the president saying he's not worthy to take out the garbage for Jesus. That's too high of a task. It's too important. So human beings are not to be Jesus' advisors or equals. They are greatly honored to even know him and be saved by him. And we should remind ourselves of our place, that we're to be servants of Jesus. And then John describes two baptisms here in verse 16. His was the baptism of water, and it's the outward. And man can perform the outward ordinance, and we should, but man cannot read the hearts of people. Man, man cannot change the hearts of people. Man can't change their insights. We preach the gospel faithfully to the ears of people, but we, but we can't take it and, and, and change them. But Jesus is different. His baptism is not the same as John's. He does change people. He says his baptism is by fire. I believe that's pointing to the judgment that's coming in verse 17. Daryl Bach, one commentator, said, One baptism is offered to the world, but it has two consequences. It divides people into two groups. Those who accept it by accepting the one who brings it are purged and taken in. Those who do not are thrown to the wind. And the next verse says that is much. And see, John is preaching the message of judgment, that Jesus is coming to separate the grain from the chaff, those who embrace him and those that disregard him. And that's why he says in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, the winnowing fork by, by the, the, this time frame was an instrument used by farmers in the ancient world to divide the chaff from the wheat. And the process was simple. The heavier, the, the usable grain would fall directly down into the threshing floor while the lighter, useless chaff would be blown away. And the farmer would take his winnowing fork and he would throw it up in the air and just the general movements of the air currents would be enough to do the job of separation. And John is saying that Jesus is ready to divide the people. Just as wheat is saved for the storehouse, so are those saved who draw near to him and will be spared. But also just as the chaff is tossed to the wind, gathered and then burned, so will be the end of those who refuse Jesus Christ. Jesus separates people and his winnowing fork is in hand, he says. He is clearing the, cleaning up the, the threshing floor. He's purging. It's a decisive judgment. If you remember just a few verses earlier that we covered last week, the axe is at the root of the tree, and John here is taking it yet another step further to drive home the point of a coming judgment. The time of crisis had come people will need to respond to Jesus. You will either love Jesus or you will hate him. There is no third option. And I find it interesting that the very nature of the chaff and the grain caused them to be separated. See, the lightweight chaff is carried off by the wind while the heavier grain falls back to the threshing floor. Their true character is revealed in this process. And this is an image that's seen throughout the Old Testament. In Proverbs 20, 26, it says, A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. In Isaiah forty one fifteen and 16, Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. And in that, he's saying God will have his judgment on all the earth. And God is going to judge those that have disregarded him, even those that have spoke of knowing him, but have never lived that way, have never turned to him. And he's separating one kind of person from another, those that trust in God and those that trust in themselves. And then Luke says in verse 18, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. See, calling John's message good news might seem odd to us, given his direct and and challenging and even harsh tone. His words seem more like a caustic warning than good news. And if we come away thinking he's too harsh, our problem is our failure to appreciate what John is offering. The reality, especially spiritual reality, often seems a bitter pill to swallow at first. Healing can involve pain, especially when we're asked to look honestly at ourselves. Yet healing is good news, and John is calling people to genuine healing of the soul. But not all of the recipients of John's preaching were thankful And we get that in the next verse. Look at verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. John didn't confine confine his preaching to Sabbath mornings and to the synagogue. No, his preaching was public, and it was sharply critical of those power structures of his day. See, John took on the religious leaders. John took on the military leaders. John took on the king. He didn't play favorites. He took on Herod, and we, and we read about his interaction with Herod in Mark's gospel. So, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. I want you to see this in your Bible. If you don't have your Bible open, you're going to get lost this morning. So, Mark chapter 6, look at verse 17. Mark gives us further details here. Luke just kind of mentions it and passes on, but Mark dives in what happened to John. He says in verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod, Herod, see, Herod liked to listen to John. Herod would be the guy that showed up every Sunday to listen to the preaching. He found it interesting. He found it fascinating. And he would even think about what he had to say. But he never had the gumption to actually act on what was preached. He, he was sinning, and in fact, with Herodias, the woman that was mentioned here. They, they had an illicit relationship. And Herodias did respond. She was very angry at John, wanting nothing to do with John. In fact, Mark says later that she held a grudge against John. He wanted him, she wanted him dead. Look at verse 20. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. Put him in prison to keep him safe. Herod had been confronted by John. If we look back, Herod was married for 20 years, but on a trip to Rome, he allowed himself to fall in love with his brother's wife, Herodias, and they devised a plan to divorce each other's spouse and to marry each other. See, Herod would listen to John, he would be intrigued with John. But he wouldn't stop his sin. He wouldn't repent. And sin confronted but unchecked often becomes sin multiplied and magnified. Defensiveness in the face of sin inevitably is self-destructive. And so often sin seeks to remove the source of exposure rather than heed a warning of love because sin wants to hide. Jesus says, and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light it does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed sin never looks out for your best interest friends instead sin always looks to destroy you and sin wants to hide Sin wants to be left alone. Sin wants the light turned off and turned away. Later in Mark's gospel, we learn that Herod had a birthday. And because of a birthday and because he's king, he threw a party for himself with a crowd to enjoy this with drinking and partying, there to impress his friends. And in this party, he had Herod's daughter come in and dance in a very provocative way. And to impress his friends, he says to her that he will give anything to her, up to half of his kingdom. And she consults with her mom, and finally, the opportunity has come to remove John, to remove the heat that she feels, the exposure of her sin. And so what does Herodias' daughter ask? But for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And because of fear, because Herod feared people, he feared what people thought about him, he feared about what people thought of his power, about his leadership. He does it. At once during the party, he he has John killed. See, Herod never repents of his sin. Instead, he gives in to his sin, the sin of pride. Herod is among those who, because of their abuse of power and lack of repentance, never truly see and hear and understand the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And those who wear crowns or hold reins of power fool themselves into believing that they determine the course of history. The Word of God bypasses the hulls of power, goes directly to the wilderness to a nobody. It goes to John, and God then uses John to go directly to those who had power to preach the gospel. See, John's life reminds us that despite moments of popularity, God's servants are normally rejected and despised by those in power. Luke doesn't give us all the details of what happens with John, but Mark does. And there's a lesson for us to learn. So for those that are here, my non-Christian friends, or those that are logged online, I have to ask, what are you doing with the preaching of Jesus? How are you responding when you're challenged in your sin? In this story, in Mark's gospel Herod misses an opportunity to repent. That means to turn away from what he knew was wrong and to turn back to God. He liked to listen to John. He probably was happy to continue to hear preaching. And he heard John's clear message that his marriage was wrong, that he was living in sin. But Herod refused to repent Even at the party, even in this moment, he had the opportunity to repent, to save John's life. But he was unwilling to do this. He didn't want to lose face. He didn't want to be embarrassed. Who is it in your life, friend, that you're afraid of disappointing if you were to turn to Jesus Christ? Maybe it's your parents Maybe it's your friends or coworkers that you're fearful will mock you because you desire to love Jesus and follow Him. Maybe it's your spouse who will look down on you. Friends, this morning, you've been given an opportunity given by God to repent of your sins and to turn back to him, and you will not always have this time. You know, Herod ran out of time. fact, if you were to turn back to Luke, later in Luke's gospel, you don't have to turn there, but later in Luke chapter 23, after Jesus is arrested, Herod gets to meet Jesus. This is what Luke says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So, he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. You notice Jesus' response? Jesus didn't answer Herod. Herod's time was done, Jesus wouldn't entertain him. Herod's lifetime of hardness towards God and the gospel cost him. We see so clearly in Luke 23 that it was done. There was no further repentance by Herod. In fact, Luke says, And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arrayed him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. That day, Herod found a new friend in Pilate but he was never a friend of Jesus. His rejection of Jesus cost him everything. To my non-Christian friends listening this morning, you're not promised tomorrow. And God gave you right now, this moment right here, today. And the question is, what will you do with Jesus Christ? Will you respond like Herod, out of fear, of what other people might think, and you reject him? Will you continue to convince yourself? I'm sure, like Herod, that you're going to have more time later in life. You just need to do a few more things in life. need to have more experiences in your young life. Then, then later, you can turn and you can live that Christian life. Friends, you don't have that promise. You're not even promised the drive home today or lunch this afternoon. But God, in His gracious kindness, woke you up this morning and brought you to this day, to this message, to this passage, to this very moment. And I implore you, friend, to turn to Christ in repentance and faith, to trust in God this morning. And to not let this day end without you believing in faith that Jesus died to take the penalty for your sins. friends, he died to save you from yourself. And I encourage you to trust in him today. And to my Christian friends who are here, I go back to the main idea of this sermon. Exalting Christ will cost us more than we realize and satisfy us longer than we can imagine. See, for John, exalting Christ to Herod cost him his life. And the reward for God's servants in this world is not found here. What did John get for preaching repentance to Herod? He received prison, and eventually he received a gruesome death. And despite the the moments of popularity for John, He received what most faithful servants of Jesus receive from this world. And he preached the gospel consistently, no matter the audience, no matter the consequences. And he would pay for it with his life. He was faithful to the task of evangelism. And the question is, are we? Are we faithful to that task? See, John wasn't a fool. He knew who he was talking to. He knew Herod was king, but Herod was a sinner, and John preached the gospel to him. He only feared God. Who are you fearing? Who is it in your life that you're hiding the gospel from because you're scared of what they might say or how they might respond? Friends, pray for boldness from God. Pray for peace. Pray for God to fill you with the gospel, with his word, with hope, with love, and with grace to share. See, Jesus would say of John in chapter 7 of Luke's gospel that no one was greater than John, of all the prophets. Jesus highly esteemed John's faithful witness. And I pray that we would be a church family full of evangelists like John, So that's the first point. That's what John says about Jesus. Second, what does the Father say about Jesus? Verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Matthew and Mark tell us of the same event, but but only Luke here notes that Jesus was praying. And this is going to be a key aspect of of the life of Jesus that Luke will, will note throughout his gospel. Many events that we'll look at, Jesus was praying when it happened. Many have been confused over the baptism of Jesus. He wasn't baptized for repentance because Jesus had nothing to repent of. He was perfect. To be baptized is to make a statement about your loyalty, your allegiance and identity. And Jesus here is identifying himself with people who need a baptism of repentance But Matthew's gospel gives us a fuller picture. Matthew chapter 3 says, And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. See, John didn't want to baptize Jesus. He was shocked that he came to him. But here Jesus is saying, his, by baptism was an act, an act of identification with sinners. He came into this world to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. And here, Jesus stands in our place, not just as the sin bearer, but also as our righteousness. He was fully obedient to every part of the law. And while he's praying, it says John, Luke says, the heavens open up. And whenever the Bible says that the heavens open up, it means that the God of of heaven revealed himself to the people on earth. We don't open up the heavens. The heavens open up for us. God always takes the initiative to show humanity the way to him. He says in verse 22 here, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And here in this verse, we have all three persons of the Trinity. God the Son begins his ministry. God the Father gives his hearty approval. And God the Spirit de- descends like a dove. And in some groups and uh, some churches, people talk about getting the Holy Spirit and how awfully small the Spirit would be if we can get a hold of him. Now, the issue is not what we get the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit takes possession of us. But why a dove? I don't know if you thought about that. I did. Why a dove? Well, I, I quoted earlier Isaiah 41. In the winnowing, but then the next chapter in Isaiah 42 gives us the reason for why the Messiah comes along with the Spirit. If you're reading the Bible with us through the year long Bible reading plan, we just read this yesterday Isaiah 42, verse 1 Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. And in this, it's a a beautiful picture that Jesus has the power to bring justice to the nations, and he won't won't use this to to break them as a bruised reed or, or to quench a burning wick. He will be tender with the weak. He'll be gentle and lowly with those that are feeling. He will be dove-like, not hawk-like. So when God anoints Jesus with the spirit in the form of a dove, it's a picture of the most of innocent birds, without gall, without talons, having no fierceness in it. And he will affirm it in the next chapter, in Luke chapter four eighteen. the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. See, the bruised reeds, the the smoldering wicks, these are those that are suffering under the the weight of their sin and the horrible teaching of the Pharisees. And he's saying here, Jesus comes with a dove-like spirit and heals and brings gentle conviction. And then Luke says here that God speaks. you imagine how that would have been? The heavens opening, you hear God, and he says, you are my beloved son, With you I am well pleased. The son is beloved by the father and this is their eternal relationship. This is what the father loves to declare that the son is is his son, the son that he loves. See, God isn't, isn't performing some new act of adoption here, but he's simply declaring on earth what had been always true in heaven. Jesus has always been the son of God. God has always been the Father. If there was once a time when the Son didn't exist, then there was once a time when the Father was not yet a father. And if that was the case, then once a time God was was not loving, since all by himself he would have nobody to love. But the Bible says that the Father has never been without the Son. And here is the, the visual approval, the affection from the Father to the Son. And his affection knows no imperfection. And the one who is loved, the Son, is perfect and worthy to be loved. And there's no more perfect love than the Father's love for his beloved Son within the Trinity. The Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved. And then, friends, get this, like a cascade, a waterfall of love, the Son loves the church. He loves us. As the Father is the lover and the head of the Son, so the Son goes out to be the lover and the head of the church. And Jesus says as much in John 15, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And there, right there, is the goodness and the greatness of the gospel. As the Father is the lover and the Son is the beloved, so Christ becomes the lover and the church becomes the beloved. This means that Christ loves the church first and foremost. And His love is not a response given only when the church loves Him. No, His love comes first. He initiates. And we only love Him because He first loved us. And with the Father's love here and this statement, there also comes a word of approval. This is what God the Father says to God the Son. He says, with you, I am well pleased. Jesus' very existence brought approval, but not only that, his obedience by submitting to baptism. Because here, Jesus is choosing to take part of sinful humanity. He was agreeing to carry out the great task that the Father had given him. He would suffer and he would die for sinners. And, and, and in this, the Father is pleased with all of it, with, with all of him. He's pleased with what Jesus had done and was doing and would do. And he took pleasure in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And part of the glory of Jesus' incarnation is that God would willingly stoop into human history. And that leads me to the last point here. What does history say about Jesus? I was born in 1977, son of Alan, son of Harry, son of John, son of William, son of John II, son of John, son of Patrick, son of Charles, son of Patrick, son of Richard II, son of Richard, son of Nathaniel, son of Richard, son of Thomas II, son of Thomas, son of Edward Coulter, born in 1522 in England." That's the earliest that we have in our family tree that we're aware of. I've been fascinated, I guess because I'm getting older, with understanding my history. Last few years, uh, in fact, when we were home last summer, visiting family, all my dad and I talked about was our genealogy. When I was a kid, I would have been bored to tears. But now I find that fascinating because it teaches us so much. But here, this genealogy, the last section of Luke's gospel, shows us the basic pattern of human existence. See, Luke's genealogy doesn't go back 500 years like mine, and I'm going to let you read this on your own. You can pronounce it on your own. But his stretches back to the beginning. His goes all the way back to Adam. It starts with childbirth, a man fathering a child and a woman bearing them out of her womb. Each child having his own name, their own identity. And they're all connected. And we're connected. We're connected to the first human, Adam. One question that arises, if you're reading other gospel accounts, is why does Luke's genealogy go back to Adam while Matthew's genealogy stops at Abraham? And the reason, I believe, surely, is that Matthew is writing for Jews who are interested in Jesus' connection with father Abraham. But Luke is writing for a Gentile and therefore is more interested in Jesus' connection with all men through the descendant of Adam. And this fits beautifully in, with the emphasis we've seen already in the universe, universe, the universal call of the gospel, that it's open to all men. And Jesus is not just the son of Abraham, but he's a man. He's connected to the first his humanity is the crucial thing. And it, and it seems that Luke wants to point him back to this, to attach him to Adam. And there's 75 people listed here. 75- persons listed in Luke's genealogy. I'm sure they all had joys and sorrows in life, their hopes and fears, cares and troubles, their schemes and plans. They were like us in many ways. I do find it fascinating to study my family. In fact, yesterday as I was finishing my sermon, I needed to stop looking at my genealogy because I wanted to travel to England and do some more research. I know there's a town and a castle in Scotland with the name Coulter, so pretty proud of that. Not sure if it's my family or not. Fascinated by this. But you know what drives my fascination? I'll just be transparent. Is that I want to believe that my ancestors were noble that they were good. I want to believe that they accomplished something important in their life. But the truth is, all of my ancestors were deeply flawed, just like me. I mean, consider, if you were to look through this list here in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, consider the skeletons in Jesus' family. Terah was an idolater. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a cheater and a thief. Judah traded slaves and consorted with prostitutes. And David, who is David? A murderer and adulterer. And we can begin to think that these men were always upstanding, that they're heroic. But they were all scoundrels. All the way back to Adam. My my family line too. I'm sure if there was a detailed list of my family's sins, I would wince for anyone to read about it. But everyone's genealogy records a long line of sinners. And all along, God is consistently and secretly ordering the economy of salvation so that all of Israel's history is moving towards the Messiah. This list of 75 persons is no accident. It wasn't by chance. This is God ordering of history for a defined purpose. And if we get nothing else from this list, we need to see that this long line of sinful humans who were in need of repentance, who were unable to save themselves. And through this list, we see they tried and they failed. We go to the next one, they tried and they failed. And that's what's striking that Luke includes a genealogy here. And for many reasons, I'm sure, but for us to understand that all of history is is moving towards this one man, Jesus Christ. He was the one who would pay the penalty for sin. And the the greatest problem with the human race is that everyone does various kinds of sins and is sinful to their core. And behind all of their depravity, behind all of their sin and, and all of their guilt, there is this connection to Adam, our father. We're all connected to him because we all, because he fell, we fall. And what Jesus Christ has done is that he came into the world, into that long line of sinners, and he did what was impossible. He lived a perfect life. He was sinless, and he took upon our sin upon himself in the cross. And Jesus, or Luke is showing us this morning that Jesus became like us. He, he didn't sin, he conquered sin. See, all these men listed in the genealogy before Jesus have all gone away from earth, gone to their own place. And so it will be with us. This is what it means to be human. We all need to face that we were born, we live, and we sin, and because we sin, we die. But we don't have to die without hope. And why? Why? Because Jesus is listed in this genealogy. From the very beginning, Jesus, God himself said that he would send uh, this line, long line of fallen sinners, he would send this Savior. For all the struggles, for all the sin that Luke lists here, they had hope. There would be one who would come to redeem And in Jesus Christ, all the promises made to Adam have been fulfilled. Friends, we too are passing away and soon we'll be gone from this earth. So how will we live these remaining days? What will be said of us when we're gone? We can too easily worry about the approval of other humans, but if you're in Jesus Christ, we are the righteousness of God. We are approved by Him which is the only approval that we need for this life. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you presently have Christ's perfect righteousness as a gift, and you can find your security and peace that will outlast any other human security and peace. So friends, trust in him, rest in him, for this week and to the end where Jesus takes us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist, for his unwavering loyalty to you and to the preaching of the gospel, even knowing that he may not be safe in all of life. Father, we thank you that John kept the main thing, the main thing. And I pray the same for us, that we will emulate his faithfulness to you and to the word. Help us to be bold in our preaching of the gospel. Remind us this morning that it's possible to share the gospel faithfully in this world. Give us hope beyond what we see and hear and and to trust in you for all things. And I pray that we would leave this place emboldened with faith in you and trust in you to share the hope that we have with those that we come in contact with. For your honor and glory alone, we pray. In Jesus' name.